The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome to everyone, and uh, special welcome to anybody who's at Common Ground for the first time tonight. It's always nice to meet folks when they show up for the first time, so feel free to come up afterward and introduce yourself if you don't mind. It's nice to know who's showing up. And, uh, you know, it's often the case that people come for a while and they often wonder, like, how do people meet each other? So we do have some ways to get to know folks. One is just to, you know, on your way out to introduce yourself, especially you old-timers, to just be willing to take that plunge and say hi. But also you could come early. Jeremy and Megan and other folks organize a tea time before the Sunday night. Sunday evening programs, and Brad organizes a cleaning time, which is also somewhat social. Nice time to, nice chance to meet folks. So take advantage of those. It's not easy to, to, d- to develop our practice if we're not to some degree connected with other people who are interested in developing the practice. It's different than sort of the cultural stream, which generally supports being distracted as a way of protecting herself. And so we've been talking the last few weeks about this practice of equanimity as expression of the basic practice you know, that the Buddha taught, this practice of waking up. We're using the mind, or you could say using the heart, to learn how to be right in the middle, learning how to uncover the natural clarity of the mind. It's interesting, we don't actually have to try to be clear. It's like no matter how each of us are experiencing our life right now, you know, when I <coughs> remember the possibility of being clearly aware, it's not so much that I have to try to make my mind clear, it's more about recognizing that the mind is already capable of being clear, and even if my mind has an agenda, or even if my mind is sort of skewed or colored by irritation or longing or whatever it might be, isn't it possible to be clear, like to clearly recognize that the mind is like this now, or the moment is like this, or the heart feels like this? So it turns out that so much of our practice is just remembering remembering that the mind is capable, or whatever you want to call this, it's capable of being clearly aware. And then, not forgetting that. That's actually the challenging part. One is discovering, or we should say rediscovering, that there is this capacity for clarity. It's like a perfectly formed mirror is already effortlessly reflecting what's going on. So that knowingness, that awareness, it's already sort of built into the system of the mind and body, already naturally, effortlessly reflecting. So we rediscover that or re-remember that, and then we practice not forgetting that. Because the interesting thing that does is it sets emotion, profound learning or insight. 
to the degree we remember to notice that reflective quality, what we call mindful awareness, to the degree we remember to notice it, to remember it, remember to remember it. I know that sounds a little confusing. Then learning happens, insight happens, can't be stopped. And to the degree we live our life unaware of that reflective awareness, to that degree no learning happens. It's a little bit like we're operating on automatic pilot or like a robot where there's no feedback mechanism. This is the whole deal. I don't know too much about artificial intelligence, but you know a little bit from just reading a few articles. You know the whole deal about artificial intelligence is somehow creating that loop w- in computers, right? Where part of what is operating in the computer is some sensitivity that's assessing the activity of the computer, right? And assessing the karma of it, like what happens when the computer is doing what it's doing, and then feeding it back into the system. So now the system is self-correcting because it's not only doing its operation, but it's paying attention to its operations and the efficiency of the operations and the success of the operations and learning from its successes and failures. Well, that's what human beings are capable of doing too. But we're also capable of living our life and not learning anything from all our mistakes and successes. Right? We see this all the time in ourselves and in others where we just keep repeating the same mistake. And we might even have enough awareness to notice that here I go again, you know, overeating or binging on this or you know, making this mistake, treating this person in this way getting the same result. And it's not so much that that moment of awareness is wrong, that's actually probably really good, but it's all the moments that were missed so that we ended up in the same place too late in a sense because already there's so much momentum to just keep doing what we're doing. Not enough clarity, not enough wisdom to say, wait a minute, I know where this goes. Been here, done this. So how does this relate to equanimity, this teaching that we've been looking? So a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that the, one of the first things we want to understand about equanimity, it's pointing in a direction of a completely different view of happiness. So I mentioned two weeks ago that our normal approach, a normal understanding of happiness is getting what I want, avoiding what I don't want. And then if, you know, sometimes we're pretty relatively competent at getting what we want, holding on to what we want, avoiding what we don't want, and sometimes we're not. But we just stay in that game. And then at some point, probably to some degree, we get frustrated because no matter how competent we get at getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want, there's always, it never ends. There's always another moment where we're trying to get what we want, trying to get rid of what we don't want. So it's always limited. Even if you really like organize that perfect vacation and you really, it all just turned out just how you wanted and the person you were with, they were just the way you wanted them to be. The weather was just the way. 
But then it ends. And then we got to like negotiate our work life and try to make it the way we want it to be. And then organize, manage our body so it's the way we want it to be. And politics and this and that, it never ends. There is a real happiness, limited, temporary, but there is a real happiness in getting what we want. The Buddha or anybody who's paid attention, there's no denying that there's a kind of happiness in getting what we want and a kind of suffering in not getting or getting what we don't want. But there's another, and this really relates to equanimity, and you can even call it equanimity, the mind or the heart not dependent on getting what it wants and getting rid of what it doesn't want. So let's hold that for a minute. Like imagine your heart, your mind, still having preferences, still having ideas of who you want to be around and who you don't want to be around and what kind of vacations you like, vacations you don't like, the way you, you would like the world to be and the way you don't want the world to be. We still have these preferences, these understandings. We're still willing to engage and try to make, you know, as long as we're not harming ourselves or others, try to, to whatever degree we can participate in how things unfold, why not try to have that so-called perfect vacation? Or why not try to make the world a better place where people treat each other fairly, where people honestly acknowledge their biases that have been built in through culture and address them, correct them as best they can? Why not aspire and do what we can do? But even while we do wholeheartedly engage, we're uncovering a heart that's okay, that isn't dependent on the world being perfect. Even at the same time of trying to make the world a better place, we're not waiting to be happy until the world becomes a better place. We're uncovering a happiness that arises precisely because it's not dependent on things, conditions being different than they are. In a way, it actually frees up the heart, the mind, to be, full, to be more fully engaged and making the world a better place, living our life in a wiser way, a more skillful way. So it, it's exactly opposite what we tend to think, that when we free up our heart from being dependent on what we see as good, getting away from what we see as bad, that we just would become passive logs that just sort of sat there and let the world happen. Why? Why do we imagine there would be no engagement when there's equanimity? See, it's a misunderstanding. I think I mentioned, I'm not sure it was Sunday night's group, but I mentioned last week in one of the groups that equanimity as an emotion, as a sort of an emotional tone. It's really, you could say, equanimity is the emotional tone of wisdom and love. Right? So if, if real love, unconditional love, the, most, the deepest, most refined kind of love, the most deepest, refined kind of wisdom, what does that feel like? And the answer, in a Buddhist sense, would be equanimity. Equanimity is how love, real love, universal love and wisdom feels in the heart. Right? So 
this, uh, it's a kind, it can be an intense, just to be provocative, it can be an intense emotion. Why can't we be feeling, intensely feeling equanimity, powerfully feeling equanimity? See it as a, a real force in the heart and mind. In the same way that anger can be a powerful force in the mind or greed and, or gratitude or forgiveness. I mean, there are all these different qualities, emotional qualities, you could say. Why can't equanimity be one of those powerful, forceful qualities? But maybe the force, you know, the intense force of equanimity would have the feeling of solidity, like this heart, this mind, this sensitivity, not easily moved, not easily ruffled by what comes and goes. So it's like the profound intimacy, sensitivity, interest, clarity, kindness, receptivity, not easily moved, not easily disturbed. And so the opposite we kind of know, right? Where you know we feel kind of good, and then we hear something and we lose it. You know, situation, circumstances change, and whatever evenness, whatever balance, whatever clarity, whatever sensitivity, and now we're lost in thought, or now we're caught up in some reactive pattern. Where equanimity would be just the opposite. N- the mind, the heart, not easily disturbed. One uh, expression of this that I really like, because I think we get it, it's the mind that's not surprised. So if you even today think about moments where you were surprised, like even in the set, you know, maybe you were sitting and then I started to talk again and you were sort of surprised. Oh, he's talking again. Or somebody sneezed, cleared their throat. Or, you know, whatever can happen that surprises you. You know, the friend is supposed to meet you there and they're not there. And you check your phone and they send you a text. Sorry, can't show up. You know, it's like, but I thought you were going to show up. You said you were going to show up. So all the time we're surprised. Maybe a few days ago when it was 95 or whatever it was, we were surprised. Like, oh my God, I guess it's summer. It's hot and humid. But imagine a mind, you know, this would be an expression of equanimity, quality or a, one of the manifestations or expressions of equanimity is the mind, the heart, still moving through life, negotiating life. In Buddhism, we call it the eight worldly winds. Success and failure, gain and loss, pleasure, pain, fame, disrepute, praise and blame. Right? All these different winds that blow naturally through our lives. So we're dealing with all that, but nothing surprises us. Oh, this person is really upset with me. Or this person really thinks I'm great. My body feels great. My body feels terrible, terribly. You know, what Mark is saying is interesting. What Mark is saying is boring. I know that. So it's like, just imagining what that would be like, nothing surprises us. It doesn't mean that we know, like we're somehow psychic and we know what's going to happen next. But what we know is that anything can happen and it will be lawful. So this is another, this I talked about not two weeks ago, but last week I really tried to emphasize the, under, the wisdom side of equanimity, which is really 
understanding karma, that things unfold lawfully, conditionally, and that when we relate with intention, when we do something on purpose, with intention, that it, in a sense, it leaves an impression on the heart, on the mind, so that my mind now, like this heart right now, this mind right now, it's the heart that has had these impressions from the past. So this is the heart that's showing up right now, the sensitive heart that's responding. This is the heart that this life is being known through. It's the heart that has all of those impressions from everything that came before, all the intentional actions, like being irritated, intending to be irritated, feeling justified, identified with my irritation, that leaves an impression. So if I was irritated, intending to be irritated yesterday, then now this heart right now is the heart. So the way equanimity fits into this is equanimity is that quality of the mind. I told you it has this flavor of wisdom and love, equanimity does. So it's that quality of the mind that understands that whatever's showing up in me, in you, in the circumstances of the world around us, is lawful, is the natural unfolding of causes and conditions, the natural unfolding of intention, and the natural unfolding of everything else that's lawful. The weather is not a mistake. It's never a mistake if it's cold, even if it's weird, like it's a really cold June day or a really warm December day. It's always lawful. It should never be surprising. I mean, maybe we didn't expect it. Maybe we didn't know it was going to be a really hot or cold day. But as soon as we recognize it, the, the equanimity in the mind understands, given everything that's in motion, this situation, whether it's internal or external, it can't be other than what it is right now. So just take something that's going on in your life now that's provocative. I mean, it might even be something like one of those terrible things that we hear about in the news, like today especially. And uh, we could, you know, spin about how shocking it is. Or with equanimity, we could have this deep, profound, moving sense of course. When everything is the way that it is, then this is what happens. People get guns and they act out their anger or they act out their delusion, they act out you know, whatever people act out when they have powerful weapons and some disturbance in their mind. That's what happens. And it's not like creating permission or resigning ourselves that people are going to shoot each other. It's just understanding that this is a lawful arising. And that, you see how, instead of making us passive, it allows that whatever response we have is going to be grounded in understanding the conditional unfolding like how things come to be. Not some idealistic notion of the way it's supposed to be, the way we want it to be, but that we're living in a lawful world. When things happen, they happen because of causes and conditions. So every response I make, like 
to give a more an example closer to home. When you're with your partner or a good friend or when I'm with my partner and let's say we're having an argument or we're having a hard time getting along. So wisdom, equanimity, it allows the heart to be close to the difficulty in the relationship because it understands that given everything in motion like your personality and my personality and it can't be right now it can't be different than how it is right now and it's painful and it hurts and equanimity allows us to be close to the confusion the ambiguity the insecurity the vulnerability the pain the ouch of what's going on in the relationship and it understands because it understands the lawfulness means that whatever I say, whatever I don't say, whatever I do is grounded in understanding to some degree how we got here because it's a natural unfolding. And even if I do the wrong thing, I say the wrong thing, I react, I blame, then the equanimity, remember, it's allowing me to be close. Right? That's the very definition of equanimity. It's that understanding, that quality of the heart, that's not afraid to be close to what's confusing, ambiguous, difficult, right? So even if I say the wrong thing, then I see how it, get wor- it gets worse. It hurts even more. The other person is upset even more. I'm upset that she's upset. It just goes on. And so the heart learns something like, that didn't work. That wasn't the skillful thing to do or say. Honey, don't do that again. Learn your lesson. Remember this. That doesn't help. Blaming doesn't help. You know, all these ways that when we have pain, I mean, the, the reflective, reflexive response to pain is to want to blame somebody. And it's so interesting when we're feeling a lot of pain and it isn't easy to blame anybody, it's like how hard we look for somebody to blame for the pain we feel. I mean, the really ridiculous example of this, but it happens pretty frequently, when we just have a lot of physical pain, like we tend to lash out at our cat or dog or person on the television set, like this show's stupid. But really what's going on is there's a lot of physical pain and we don't like it, and we don't know how to be close to it because there's not enough equanimity in the mind. So we lash out at something that has nothing to do with the physical pain that we have. I mean, this is how we set emotion more suffering. It's in the not understanding suffering, the not understanding the experience of pain and reacting in ways that sort of is not connected with our experience that we so so the seeds of more suffering and pain in life. Isn't it interesting how often we say something like, with so much certainty, this shouldn't be happening. Like maybe even today with the news. I don't know if everyone's heard the news, but there's another mass killing in Florida this time. And it's it's just easy for people to think, for us to think, well, this this is not right. This shouldn't be happening. 
But you see, it's a way of distancing ourselves from the pain and the confusion that comes up. Like, we, it's really hard to understand what happens when somebody kills a bunch of people. But remember, we don't have to understand it. We just need to know that it's lawful, that it's a conditional arising. We just need to be willing to be close to what it feels like to hear that somebody's killed a lot of people. What does that feel like? Can you tune into that? Or whatever it is. Like We could just as easily tune into the fact that there are millions of people in prison and this extraordinary percentage of them are people of color in a way that makes no sense. Anybody who takes the time to really own that we live in a society that has, you know, a society that has a history of enslaving people and now, you know, many decades later, isn't it interesting that so many of the ancestors of those people who were enslaved are in prison? I mean, doesn't that, for me, just speaking from my own experience, that feels, something feels really off about that. I can't, you know, I don't have a story about that, except that it feels like this. It feels wrong. Something's wrong. And that's a very disconcerting feeling to sort of own, you know, and this is just one of many examples of the systemic injustices, the ways that we mistreat each other and don't connect, don't honestly relate to each other, don't, don't know how to include each other so that we can connect. And so equanimity is really what's allowing us to connect. And it doesn't mean we have the answers. It just means we know how to feel what it feels like to live in an imperfect world where people get hurt unnecessarily, where people are taken advantage of. We're willing to get closer and closer and closer And then our response now then includes the pain, that sort of honest recognition, that honest connection with the pain. This is how we're a good friend. We can't really be a good friend unless we, like when they show up and they're confused or they're in pain, what we want to do is sort of be in our lofty position of, you know, like, I get it. I get what you did. I know what you did wrong. Here's... Here's how you, you know, turn your life around. Generally, that's not very helpful. But when somebody shows up and they're in a difficult place and we're willing to get in that, we're willing to sort of sympathetically vibrate with their insecurity, their vulnerability, their uncertainty, right? And then what are we doing? We're modeling not being afraid of what it's like to be an insecure human being, to be a human being that doesn't have all the answers, right? See, that human being might be capable of being a little bit more creative in how they respond to their life because they're not, we're not sort of neurotically rushing in with an answer because we're afraid to feel what it feels like to not know the answer. You see, so it's interesting, isn't it, that that Willingness to be vulnerable to not knowing the answers to our life or somebody else's life, that willingness to feel that vulnerability, the ambiguity and uncertainty, 
it actually allows for more skill to arise, a more creative response. Because we're not dependent on knowing the answer, so we're not, we're not going to fall into that habit of pretending we know the answer, faking it. Right? Because it's too scary to honestly acknowledge that we don't know. And this is true everywhere in our lives. Those of you who are falling in love or deciding to be in a committed relationship or those of you who are in a committed relationship, even if it's with your pet, you know, and then it's like we don't really, does anybody really certain? We're not really certain. This is the right cat for me, the right dog for me, the right partner for me, the right meditation center this was the right shirt to wear with gray plant pants. I can't tell you how many times today I've looked down and realized, does this shirt go with these pants? <laughs> I forget about it till the next time I look down. <laughs> so maybe I should just not look down. <laughs> but it's like learning, that's what equanimity is. It's like how to be intimate and how to be responsive in a world where we don't get certainty. And I've, I've said this before in the group, but I think one of the best definitions of ignorance, like if you want to recognize when the mind is colored by ignorance, it's when there's the appearance of certainty. And you want to know when the mind might be grounded in a more authentic expression of wisdom, when the mind is comfortable and clear about the uncertainty, knowing that it doesn't know with certainty. Doesn't mean we don't have opinions. Doesn't mean we don't have some intuition or some inclination that this might be the right way. But even though we might have some intuition or some inclination, we can. We're not afraid to ground or honestly acknowledge. I don't know with certainty. But still, not acting isn't doesn't appear to me to be more skillful than acting on whatever intuition I have. And I'm going to continue to be awake so that if it turns out to not be the right or useful response in the moment, I'll see that. At some point, if I'm tracking my experience with this wise, kind, equanimous attention, I'll get, oh yeah, it doesn't seem like this is the right thing to do. Or maybe I can adapt and adjust right now, or maybe it's too late. But in any case, honey, I'm really going to feel what it feels like to have made the wrong turn here. Like, let it, let that, right? Because that was an intentional action. So now it's making an imprint in the heart. So now the heart, the mind going forward is the heart and mind that has this imprint like, that, that wasn't very helpful. That wasn't very skillful. So in that way, we've turned our mis- so-called mistakes into gold because they've left an impression on the mind stream. And the mind stream going forward is the mind stream that has made a mistake and learned from it. Because it's, it, we have that continuity of awareness that was tracking. Oh yeah. It's like we build monuments, all of our mistakes, instead of like these old wounds that we wish we hadn't done. It's like, why waste our time wishing we didn't do it? That impression is there. How do we turn it into gold? We connect the dots. We realize, oh yeah, when it's like this and the mind interprets the situation like that and then does this, 
then things hurt, right? And I do things that cause other people to hurt. And then it gets really messy, right? And then there's the tendency to want to not feel it, and that makes it even worse. Right? And then at some point, there's some healing and deep, painful acknowledgement. I'm tired of running from this. I'm tired of being in denial. I'm going to see this clearly. Even if it happened 10 years ago, I'm going to be honest, at least with myself. And if there's any need to make amends, I'm going to make amends not because that person needs me to make amends. It might be really healing for them. I don't really know. But it, it's healing for me to make amends when it's appropriate, to fix things, even if it's 30 years ago, because it's healing. We're doing it to take care of our own heart. It sets a new impression in the heart. This is the heart that could clearly recognize that wasn't helpful and no longer wanted to be the person holding this. So it you know, asked for forgiveness or offered forgiveness. It took care of its business. And now it's the heart that takes care of business. That's a heart we like to feel, like to be present with. It's a heart we can trust. Oh, this is the heart that likes to take care of business, no matter how old, how ancient it is. You know, I mentioned racial injustice earlier. This is sort of a very, I just noticed what an interesting thing it is around um, reparations. I don't know if you caught this, but several years ago, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, this wonderful journalist, writer from the Atlantic Monthly, he wrote this amazing article about reparations for African-Americans, and it just really stirred the pot in the country. It's, you can easily find it online. Just Google the word reparations, and it will probably come up pretty close to the top. And, uh, but it's just interesting. It's like, it's just be all these places that are so confusing and entangled, and we have so much cultural conditioning around. It's like, it just seems easier to say, let's just keep moving forward and hope that we somehow heal the past by not really wanting to unpack it, not really wanting to take a close look at it. And this is true in our relationships, like our family of origin stuff, everything. It's like when things are messy, I see this in my relationship with my wife too. It's like, you know, just being conditioned beings, we've got history. Now we've been together for 25 years or so, lived together for 25 years. And um, so there's some stuff there. And uh, it always feels like, well, let's just keep moving forward. (laughs) But sometimes the way forward is to like let that old stuff come up, let it unpack, and let, it's like letting the whole thing fall apart. And it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the signs in my own relationship of real health is the capacity, the fearlessness I think we both have to let the whole thing fall apart and get really messy. And the old wounds come out and the neediness and the fear and the resentment and the anger. And there it is, just sort of out there. And except there's something else out there too, which is this this wisdom that understands, this equanimity that understands now it's like this. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of any world, whether it's two people's world or the bigger world. We don't have to be afraid of the messiness. 
how much is unfinished, how much is unresolved, how much is confusing. We don't have to be. Being afraid means we keep choosing to be unaware, which is why things get so entrenched. Why did the Middle East get so messy? Right? Because somebody didn't really want to do the hard work of taking a look at the roots of suffering, the roots of injustice, right? And they wanted to patch it up. Let's try this. You know, do some power play. Listen, I'm going to be the parent here. My guns are bigger than your guns. This is how we're going to do it. We'll put the border here. You get this, you get that. You know, and we keep doing these things without really unpacking the pain, unpacking the mess. It's like this is what we have to do in medicine, right, Megan? Right? If you, I remember, I think Steve is even here tonight. Is Steve Bird here tonight? Well, maybe not. Maybe he's here this morning. But anyway, a community member on a motorcycle, this is a number of years ago, a good friend of mine, longtime community member. Steve was here before Common Ground was here. Right? We were practicing together even before Common Ground was here in the early 90s. But anyway, he had a terrible b- motorcycle accident a long time ago. And uh, so a lot of our community you know, kind of showed up at Regions, and we just did this vigil kind of holding. See, every once in a while we got to go into the intensive care. He was in intensive care for a long time. I don't know, I think at least a week. And uh, one time, mistakenly, the nurse or doc, doctor, I'm not sure who it was, but when we walked in, a couple of us walked in, and uh, he was like wide open. Because I guess one of, the th- one of the advantages of the two, especially the most recent Iraq war, was they learned a lot, of, a lot about trauma. And one of the things evidently they learned, and Megan, you can correct me, but it's like don't sew it all up there when there's a lot of trauma to the organs. Don't immediately sew it up once you clean it up. Leave it open because it's going to seep or I don't know what it is. Too much pressure. Yeah, I guess there's just a lot of inflammation. So they just sort of leave it open. And they, they have, you know, the different sheets or whatever to cover it up. Um, but they didn't. So, you know, we walked in and it's like wide open. And, uh, but it turns out to be healing. Sort of that kind of radical exposure. Another example of that, I grew up as a Catholic had a relatively good experience as a Catholic growing up. Really appreciate my background. Um, but I had statues in my bedroom as a kid of St. Joseph and St. Francis and Mary. And they all had hearts. You know, that was sort of like, they were, you know, they were about this high. So just like a half an inch outside of their body, they had this sort of ex- total exposed heart. Now, why did the Catholics use that symbology? Because it's exactly opposite of our tendency to want to armor it, right? So they knew something about spiritual practice, that it's about the undefending of the heart. And that's where equanimity comes in. So as you kind of, and we'll come back to equanimity one more week next um, Sunday night. Actually, yeah, next Sunday night. And uh, But this week, really take a look at that exposure like that's actually how you're going to find equanimity it's not by imitating equanimity but by getting close to what's confusing or getting close to what's ambiguous or what's uncertain or what's difficult and that's how you're going to find 
these beautiful qualities of heart like compassion and equanimity. It's exactly that quality of the mind or heart that lets you get close, not afraid of these difficult states of uncertainty, vulnerability, suffering. So whenever you find that you're close and relaxed and intimate and awake and clear, that means there's equanimity there. So then, then ask yourself, like, what's the mind like now? How does this feel that I'm here with this person or with my own situation that's really hard to bear? But I'm relaxed and I'm clear. What's that like? And you get a better sense. That's how we learn what equanimity is like. And then we can draw on it. The more we become familiar with it, the easier it is to find it. It's always available, as a potential at least, but we have to find it. We have to, and a lot of that move is confidence that it's available. So when you see it, the confidence builds. Every time you notice, well, here I am in a really ambiguous, really challenging situation, but the heart, mind, it's stable. It's clear, not afraid to be close, not afraid to see things as they are. Ah, this is wisdom. This is real love. This is what equanimity is like, what compassion is like, this capacity to be close. So we have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some of you. I mentioned last Sunday that we take a little bit t- more time so that people can share from your direct experience or ask questions. Remember, point the mic right at your mouth about an inch away, then we'll all be able to hear each other. So who'd like to begin? And if you don't mind, you can even say your first name. What have you been learning through your life about equanimity or what have you seen that's in the way of equanimity? What questions do you have? Thanks, Rick. Yeah, um, I have these two friends, Harold and Sean, who live in Orlando and just got married in September and... um, so I've been thinking about them all day, and I, you know, I sent an email, and I haven't heard back, and so I'm, like, I'm, I'm feeling this fear about their safety. I'm, I'm feeling angry at, um, you know, some of the political posturing, and, um, you know, just so many devastated people. You know, the parents of this gunman included. You know, they're just heartbroken, and, and so. I was sitting here and like some part of me was like I don't want to feel equanimity like like I was feeling guilty like I shouldn't be feeling equanimity and and it's like no wait a minute I know better than that that is you know and um what you said tonight really kind of helped sort that out and and you know um like I, I just feel tur- tur- uh, turmoil and <laughs> confusion, but I got what you're saying about you know like because you want to be close to that yeah thing, yeah you? and so I just wanted to thank you mm. for that because um, it, it just helped a lot yeah so let's keep remembering because I think the point Rick's making is we have this idea of equanimity being flat and distant. And in Buddhism, we call that the near enemy because it looks like equanimity, but it isn't equanimity. So equanimity is what lets us be close to the turmoil, 
you know, the fact that Rick can sit here and share means that he, and be honest about it, means that there's equanimity there. Now, we might not call it equanimity, and that's okay. You can call it something else. You can call it wisdom, fearlessness, you know. So, But it's nice, you know, the way the Buddha unpacked the different qualities of mind, it, uh, it sort of helps us get closer, like, oh, there is this capacity to, like, even when the mind is in turmoil, there's a balance that isn't disturbed by the turmoil, right? You don't have to neurotically act out the turmoil. Things are a little wild inside, but we know how to be okay with the turmoil. That's different than just neurotically acting it out. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Robert. All the way over, second row of chairs. My name is Robert, and um, the thought I've had uh, in thinking about equanimity is that it doesn't seem, for me anyway, to be immediately available to me, equanimity. I have to search for it. I have to go through some pain, and then I get there. And the great part is that I get there. Um, But uh, would you speak to the initial impact of something. Yeah. Well, the, the key is to, to really get familiar with equanimity and, um, in, in a very accessible way. Like the first few minutes when you lie in your bed tonight, assuming you're, you, know, you have a pretty comfortable, safe place to put your head down, then because the situation for most of us at that time is pleasant and safe, there will be a natural equanimity, like not needing the moment to be different than it is. So even though it's, it's an equanimity that's arising because conditions are just perfect, or really just the way we want them, still the non-reactivity has a particular flavor. You know, the balance, the absence of the mind reacting has a particular flavor, and we can learn to feel that. Like even right now, for a lot of us, we can be relatively content. I mean, it's going to be over soon, so even if you do want to go home, you're going to be able to go home pretty soon. And so we can, most of us right now, we can relax. We can abandon reactivity, can't we, mostly, right now? And so let's notice, what does it feel right now, this not needing the condition of the body or the condition of the mind, or even the circumstances around us, not needing it to be different than it is. If you can, to whatever degree you can find yourself in that place, what's that feeling? So we're learning to get familiar with that non-reactivity of the mind. But the non-reactivity, it doesn't mean we're not going to respond or do the next thing. It just means that we've made peace with not doing it. So then when we do something... We're not doing it because we have to do it. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. So like, I'll give an example. I mean, a really superficial example, but I have some chocolate at home. So one thing I could do when I walk into the kitchen and I see it sitting there, I could like sit down and notice the craving 
to put that chocolate in my mouth. It's the kind with salt crystals, right? Dark chocolate and salt, and then caramel in the middle. <laughs> and you can put the whole piece in your mouth all at once. <laughs> it fits. It's very satisfying. There's something about salt and sweet together. So, you know, like this is, and then I can, I can make peace with the unpleasantness of that craving. And I can really get to a moment or moments where I'm really okay if this evening I don't eat that chocolate. I can really get there. And then I can go have the chocolate or not. But sometimes you have to actually not have the chocolate to make sure that when you feel like I'm really okay being the one who doesn't have the chocolate tonight, then you have to test that to make sure that that that's not like you're just saying that's who you can get on to getting the chocolate. <laughs> but in that moment, or it's like uh, you're a little cold or you're a little hot and you want to take off some clothes or put some clothes on. But before you do it, you can make peace with the discomfort. Or like sometimes I'll catch myself making a mistake and I get really neurotic. Like I really want, I said the wrong thing to somebody and I feel badly about it. I really want to connect with them and correct my mistake, but it's really nice when I can't do it right away for whatever reason, like they don't pick up, or to just make peace with being somebody who made a mistake that's already, it's still all out there, hanging out there, unresolved. And then I learn a little bit more about equanimity. So it's in these small places. Don't go immediately to the, you know, the massacre that happened today, or and having equanimity for racial injustice or things like that, because we'll probably end up faking it for those bigger things. But the little things, we can actually in moments have the authentic experience that I'm really, in this moment, I can be at peace with this unpleasant feeling of things being unresolved or imperfect, unfinished, needing to be addressed. But first I'm making peace with it, so then my response in the next moment isn't because I can't be at ease with things. Because sometimes there isn't anything for us to do. Right? There are a lot of difficult, terrible things that happen, and it really isn't much for us to do, except a willingness to be close to what it feels like. That's something. But for whatever reason, this isn't for us to respond to, at least not in this moment. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Other thoughts that come to mind or questions? Yeah, Lewis, please. Okay, and then we'll go to Lewis afterward. Okay, well, either way, somebody could walk the mic over to Lewis if you want. Thanks. Uh, am I in here? Yeah, I am. I can hear myself now. Um, let's see. I guess there were a couple of really big events for me the past couple of days, and I guess it's probably true for others too. The The services for Muhammad Ali had a surprising number of people who said things where... In my mind, it's like they were connecting a lot of dots and speaking very, 
bringing up I, what I felt was a lot of truth that I think a lot of times people are afraid to put out there in the world. And so I experienced that as very elating and affirming in a lot of ways. And then within about 24 hours to have this outburst of violence. And I think the first thing that struck me was something about not holding on to either experience, which I think has something to do with equanimity. But there's a way where all of it sort of is heavy on the heart. Um, and I think because I have so many friends and family who are, you know, both in the Muslim community and the GLBT community, um, it just sort of felt like, well, was this a coincidence that the day after when something happened that might have reached a lot of people in terms of not seeing Islam as this sort of very narrow thing. Um, and to me, it keeps begging the question of, well, not clinging to this experience or that one, whether it's elating or heart-wrenching, but how do we build bridges through all of this experience that can be one extreme or another? How do we see clearly how we're related and how um, if I can't be at peace there's somehow, because we're all in this uh, network of life, how, how, how I'm doing really does affect you and vice versa. Yeah. Am I le leaping too far here? No. Um, and, and when we can sort of not cling to experience in a certain way, it's it seems like it might clear the way to like see one another, feel one another, and realize this is our common ground that we all have to somehow stand on and cherish. Um, I don't know. It's It's been hard, but there's a part of me that's thankful for that struggle for the insights um, because, you know, one last thought is that we're at such a crucial time in human history that this practice offers some skills that can help us move through maybe the most difficult time any human beings have seen in a long, long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what I heard you pointing to, too, is that, that willingness to have a sensitive heart that feels that we're not afraid to feel things deeply and not rush into... Because a lot of times we rush into a solution because we're unwilling 
to feel what we feel. And, you know, one of the reasons I think people were connecting the dots, I heard some of those <coughs> people speak, and I felt the same way, like a lot was coming together in some of those sharings. And I think part of it is that when at a memorial service, people, one of the few places where people are given permission to like be really grounded in feeling, and then our understanding that we're not just caught up in our ideas about things. It's really connected to the enormity and the confusion. Like feelings aren't linear, you know? And our hearts keep getting broken and broken, and it's a good thing because we're sort of stripping away the idea that um, the solution is this abstraction, like this utopian abstraction of how we're all going to get along. But actually, it's more, I think, about connecting in this reality. Like as we look around the room, everybody here, whether they know it or not, has a broken heart. Right? Everybody here is feeling things, or they may not be aware of it, but there's feeling here they don't know what to do with. They don't know, they don't have a good story that explains it all. But this is what we share. And it's what, and it, you know, transcends any, you know, religious tradition or cultural tradition. This vulnerability of the heart, the sensitivity of the heart. You see, it's non-conceptual, and uh, and it really is liberating if we can get there with another person. And we we find our ways every once in a while, and then we'll tell ourselves a story about why we had that connection with that person. But what really happened is there was we, the mind dropped its stories. It wasn't there wasn't the overlay, like oh yeah, that's Lewis, that's that's his way of talking. You know, it's like we box people in our ideas of each other instead of, you know, there's a human being feeling something. That's why we like these silly videos of, you know, a dog seeing its owner after being on military service for six months, you know, and they come home. It's because it's so raw and real. And it's not about, like, I love my dog. It's not a story about me loving my dog. It's just a movement. And... It's not that movement isn't governed or there isn't an overlay on it. But we should probably leave it here, just open it all up. We'll continue the conversation, but connect with people on your way out. Continue the conversation as well. But anyway, let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take two breaths together. And to appreciate our spiritual ancestors, all the women, all the men, all the people who in their busy lives cultivated this simple presence, shared the wisdom out of kindness, and now we're the recipients, our turn in our busy lives, to really dedicate ourselves to being awake and being intimate and trusting the heart that feels, not being confused, learning to not be confused by the feelings that come and go. So may this be so.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.